Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas, and so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents, and how much more could it provide if um, we just made it a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, a podcast of Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome the author of Billion Dollar Burger, Chase Purdy. In today's episode, we'll talk to Chase about fake meat, the race to corner the market on the future of chicken nuggets, and we'll hear Chase's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to our first episode of Season 9. We hope you're staying healthy, safe, and sane during these turbulent times. We send our well wishes to everyone coping with the pandemic, especially those in the hospitality industry. And we continue to extend our gratitude to all the essential workers keeping the world going. We are looking forward to the presentation of the 2020 Julia Child Award to Danielle Nirenberg at the sixth annual Smithsonian Food History Weekend and Gala from Home, October 15 to 17, 2020. A COVID silver lining is that the gala and Food History Weekend will be virtual this year, making it easier than ever to participate. Stay tuned for how you can register to join us. It's free. And in case you missed it, check out episode 94 for our interview with Danielle. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia had a keen interest in what's new, and this podcast is designed to carry on that tradition. And while Julia was skeptical about people creating, quote, new foods, she welcomed the chance to learn about them. Often, she was not a fan, like with the movement to replace butter with margarine, but she happily embraced new tech that saved time in the kitchen, like the food processor. And in terms of diet fads, Julia was in the same camp as many French people remain, finding vegetarianism quizzical, eschewing restriction for a balanced diet and moderation. 
But whether or not you stay carnivore, I think most of us are much more conscious of the environmental damage to the planet from large-scale meat production. And I've no doubt this would concern Julia a lot. So I'm pleased to welcome today's guest to bring us right to the cutting edge of potential solutions. Now, I originally thought a book called Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food, was going to be about the plant-based movement. But in fact, it's all about cell-cultured meat. It's written by Chase Purdy, a journalist who focuses on the business politics and technology of the food world. He's written for Quartz and Politico and in newsrooms across the American South. Based in New York City, he's also a 2019 New America National Fellow. He joins us today to bring us up to speed on the race to get you eating lab-made meat and usher us into the future of high-tech food. Welcome to the podcast, Chase. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're delighted you could be here. So let's start with the basics and kind of define terms. What is cell-cultured meat and how does it differ from what people might be more familiar with like an impossible burger? <clears throat> right. No. So cell-cultured meat is fundamentally different from the plant-based varieties that you're going to find in the grocery store or at Burger King right now. Um, and that it is, you know, the plant-based burgers like Impossible Burger are trying to be something that they are not on a very fundamental level. You have very impressive scientists and business people who are taking ingredients from the world of plants and they are trying to mimic the uh, every sort of function and feeling that you get whenever you bite into a chunk of meat. Cell-cultured meat is different because on a very sort of microscopic and nutritional level, it is uh, real meat. And it's made by basically, I mean, it's, it's all very complex, but it, put simply, you know, scientists have figured out that you can go to a farm and you can perform a pretty harmless biopsy on a chicken or a pig or a cow or what have you, and you can collect uh, some cells. The scientists look for stem cells, and what they've learned is that these stem cells, um, if you feed them this sort of nutrient-dense liquid, um, stuff that has sort of the right proteins and amino acids and all the sorts of things that generally flow through blood, um, if you let these cells swim around in this uh, liquid medium that they sort of start to proliferate. And they proliferate and grow into either fat tissue or muscle tissue. So the people behind these companies, and there are you know, almost 50 across the globe right now, um, have figured out that you can grow fat tissue, you can grow muscle tissue, and if you put the two together, you have what is real meat. Um, is it made differently than you know, slaughtering an animal and ra raising an animal, slaughtering an animal, processing that animal. Yes. But at the end of the day, the product that you have is essentially like uh, equivalent to what you would find if you put, you know, a normal cut of meat under a microscope. And the technology is pretty expansive because while I was sort of comparing it to an Impossible Burger because that's familiar and there is that kind of plant-based race for the best meat substitute, meat substitute usually referring to a hamburger, what you are covering and exploring is sort of every type of meat, Not maybe not every type, but multiple types. It's beef, it's poultry, it's pork, it's game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, they... I personally have tried uh, duck, beef, and chicken, but there is a company in Singapore that's working on shrimp. 
There are companies working on bluefin tuna. There are companies working on salmon. Um, and definitely you have like full cut steaks, burgers, uh, foie gras even, you know, <laughs> to sort of go back to the French um, element. But yeah, no, they're working on all an array of different types of products. In fact, the other day, I think a company in San Francisco announced that it was, you know, preparing a taste test, a minor, a sort of very small scale exclusive taste test of, of lab grown bacon. Well, and you write in the book from the different times that you sampled it, the, the once you sort of move past the I, the odd idea of what you're eating, that that at least in a taste profile, it it's your your body is reading it is similar, or there's always a little bit of a difference in your samplings. Right. So the products that I've tried mostly are these sort of processed food products that you would probably find in a lot of freezer sections. I mean, it's just easier to create a chicken nugget than it is a full cut steak or a chicken breast, for instance. This is just has everything to do with how the cells grow and how we get them to grow the right way in order to become, you know, a cut of meat. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, these like earlier stage products of the chicken nuggets, those are just, I mean, they're, it's pretty easy to meet that expectation. You have like, um, sort of these, this, this cell tissue that grows, you bread it. I mean, it comes out and it looks basically like, um, very, very, very ground meat. And you sort of treat it the same as a chicken nugget or a chicken finger. You bread it, you fry it, you season it a little bit and you serve it. And my experience with those has been pretty much identical to what I, um, would get from a regular meat product. I was like super skeptical walking in, um, but it is in fact like, I mean, it's pretty mind blowing. There was a chicken tender that I tried um, about a year ago at Memphis Meat, and I remember not only was it the the taste the same, but one of the things that I've always liked to do whenever I get a a bit of this meat in my hands is I like to sort of physically pull it apart and look and see how it tears, what it's like on the inside, and you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners of this podcast will know that if you have a cooked piece of chicken and you pull it apart, it's like kind of stringy on the inside. It's mm. really, really difficult to get that stringiness um, because you just have to basically instruct the cells to grow that way. And it's it's very hard. But I remember pulling apart this chicken tender and think, and seeing that stringiness and just thinking like, wow, they've done it. Well, and I guess that relates, that structure is usually based on the fact that you're essentially, you're eating an animal's muscles when you're eating particularly lean meat. So right. they're... Could we go back to the serums, though? Because I think that that's, um, particularly in your book, one of the more black box parts of the whole process. And it's also the process, in my mind, it would sort of be easier if, you're, if you just imagined it or easier to accept the concept if you're like, oh, they pull the cells out, they put in a lab and a Petri dish, and it just grows into a, 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 you know, a chicken thigh. But that isn't really what happens. They have to bathe them in these sort of serums. And that to me sort of adds this slightly Frankenstein-ish um, creepiness to the process, especially because I think you, you said the serums are kind of secret um, formulas. Is, is that how you perceive it too? Or having been exposed to it firsthand, you have a, a different kind right. of relationship to the idea? So the liquid medium is as 
is as science fiction-y or as fascinating as, you know, you want it to be as you approach this topic. Um, I think it's probably, you know, whenever you talk about this, and I guess I should have said before, like you take these cells, they're in this liquid medium and all of this is happening inside what looks like a sort of a high-tech beer vat um, that has sort of oxygen control and pH control. But that liquid, yeah, it's, it's sort of an element of what the cells feed on is basically you know, a witch's brew of nutrients that all cells need to, you know, reproduce. And in the earliest stages and of this sort of science, uh, the people who were growing cell-cultured meat used what people in the pharmaceutical industry still use today, and that's called fetal bovine serum, which is as weird and creepy as it sounds, it is uh, cow fetus blood because it just has all of those nutrients in it. But the people who were behind cell-cultured meat pretty much knew that no one was going to love the idea <laughs> that, they, you know, their, yeah, that their meat was going to be need, would need to have you know, cow fetus blood in order to be produced. And also, cow fetus blood is just extremely expensive. And it was not going to be, you know, it's a drop in the bucket for the pharmaceutical industry to use. But for cell-cultured meat startups, it's massively expensive. It can be up to $1,500 per liter. So... They knew pretty early on that they were going to have to to create their own sort of witches' brews, and these are all sort of um, this is also the subject of their own intellectual property. So they are pretty secretive about it. The company that I followed most closely in the book, it's called Just. They basically have you know someone on staff who, as part of his job, he sort of travels around the world looking for different plant species. Um, and brings their seeds back to San Francisco with him where he mills them down. And then the company does a pretty high-tech, high-intensity sort of exploration. They take a deep dive into these seeds to see just what kinds of proteins do they contain inside them, just what kinds of you know other nutritional elements are, are inside these seeds. And then they kind of just did, by trial and error, would create um, new sort of liquid mediums that used elements of the plant world uh, to try to figure out how to replace all the things that would be in fetal bovine serum. And all pretty much every company in this space now is doing that. Almost none of them are using fetal bovine serum at all anymore. Um, and so I think that it is sort of on one level, it is kind of like Frankenstein-y in a way. But I think it's also sort of, um, you know, for me personally, it's it, it was sort of an interesting look at just how clever and how far humans can be and where they'll go in order to make this thing work. And, you know, not every liquid medium works for every type of cell. You know, you can, you can pull cells from a pig and it might work great in one of their liquid mediums that uses, I don't know, like mung bean proteins, but it may not work so well for beef or chicken, which means that the companies then have to go back to the drawing board to create a different kind of potion for those cells. Um, and that's kind of what the last like couple of years, that's been sort of one of the biggest hurdles that they've all had to leap over. And many of them are, they're, they're doing it. And so it sounds like a lot of the serums now are essentially plant-based and while they're manipulated could be deemed natural. Is that your impression or is that only true for certain producers like Jess? It's only true for certain producers as far as I'm aware. And it's also one of these, you know, this is like a fascinating thing. Like there's so many questions that we all 
should have and could have about these liquid mediums. And I think that this actually raises a bigger point about this industry. Um, no one really, I think, necessarily loves the idea that their food is, you know, has to be like an, a fundamental element of making this food lives behind a secret, you know, this intellectual property question. Um, but we all do want to know more about like, how does this serum work? And like, what is, what is this, what are these cells feeding on? Unfortunately, like, I don't have all the answers to that, even though I wrote a book about this subject. Mm -hmm. um, the companies are pretty tight lipped about it. Um, but at least for some of the companies, yes, the ones who are making their own out of plants, I think that there is an element where they could probably make the case that it's like a natural serum. But, you know, I also don't feel like I have the expertise to say that yet, because I don't, they haven't really opened their books to show me everything that's in these. Fair enough. I wanted to switch gears a bit to go, go a little even bigger picture to the sort of motivations behind this, which, yeah. you know, because you can kind of get bogged down into like, how is it made and who is it for? But I think that there's this combination of mission driven behind it. It's both ecological and environmental and also related to hunger, which are obviously really important global issues that are fairly altruistic too. But the, the and the book profiles a lot of uh, a certain ones of these pioneers that you were able to follow and i was just curious if your overall impression or was that it's one more than the other or it's pretty equally balanced that their motives are half profit half mission or more mission than profit what where did you net out after spending so much time with these these different pioneers there are different there are a couple of players in this space for sure that i think that I would guess are probably in this hoping to like make a lot of money, but the vast majority that has not been my impression. Um, if you look back at a lot of the people who are behind these companies, you know, several in particular, I think they, they all kind of like got in it because they were tied into the vegan movement uh, back whenever they were in their like early twenties um, or in their teen years. And they were, you know, animal rights activists. They were very mission driven people. Some of them got into this because they read sort of this now famous UN report called Livestock's Long Shadow, which sort of famously detailed just how, you know, damaging industrial livestock production is on the planet. And most of the people got into this because of one of those two things, because either animal welfare or because they were concerned about the planet. And you still catch that whenever you talk to them today. I mean, the person that I follow most closely, Josh Tetrick, is leading one of the largest companies that's in this space. Um, but whenever he talks about uh, his company and why he's in it, it really comes down to like the animal welfare element, more so even than the environmental one. Um, and, you know, you can kind of understand why we kill some, I think it's like 65 billion land animals a year to satisfy sort of our appetites for meat. And that doesn't even include fish. We kill like between one and two trillion fish. And, you know, a lot of these people find that to be disturbing still, and they want to put a nick in that. Um, and then, you know, the other people, you know, who are more environmentally inclined, I mean, just they always point to just how, how wasteful animal agriculture is. It takes six pounds of feed to get one pound of beef, 3.5 pounds of feed to get one pound of pork, and, you know, a little over two pounds to get a pound of chicken. 
that's sort of a fundamentally wasteful um, business in their in their eyes. Yeah, I'm really struck, and we've talked about this in other episodes on the podcast, by this comment my mother-in-law, who's 82, made about when she was a girl, which was right at the, during World War II, chicken was a special item. You didn't eat it every day, and it was once in a blue moon kind of special food, and it's become a, a constant, almost boring food, if you will. And there seems to be this, this almost, there are two sides of the argument, right, which is everybody should eat meat less meat to no meat and we would just reduce animal production greatly or in a weird way i feel like what just is doing is almost kind of and some of these other guys a capitulation to like we're never going to accomplish that so we might as well find another avenue is that kind of your impression that these guys are all capitulating or it's just that they 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 they're just realist and they're going with this opportunity so I think that's actually, you know, this is a great question and it gets right into why I ever even showed an interest in covering this space in the first place. Um, I think that it is maybe a little bit of both a capitulation and also sort of their own uh, cleverness. I think that what I found, what, what drew me to this topic is that I was doing a lot of reporting on the meat industry for Politico. And what I when you start covering the meat industry, you like inevitably run into people who cover, who are concerned about animal agriculture and concerned about animal welfare rather. And what I kind of learned is that the people who are getting into cell cultured meat, sort of whenever there were only a handful of companies in existence back like, you know, several years ago, what I noticed was that pretty much all the CEOs sort of knew each other. Uh, the, all the people in this space were kind of had been friends with each other in the early 2000s and in Washington, D.C., and they were all vegan activists. And mm. what I kind of learned from them was that, and I think the way I put it in one story about this topic in particular is that I think I said like the vegan movement's brain finally outgrew its heart because this group of people kind of looked at what they were able to, able to accomplish and you know, one of them said, if, if we're screaming so hard, why is nobody listening? Mm. And so I think with that idea in mind, they thought, well, here's this technology. We can put a dent in the animal welfare problem that we see by, by subverting this sort of capitalist factory farm system that we hate so much. Let's get into this big system and let's figure out how to subvert it. And... I would say it's probably too soon to say that they've been that they'll be successful, but certainly they've raised millions and millions of dollars. There are fifty, at least fifty companies around the world that are making this right now, and five of those companies are now working on uh, building out their own pilot production facilities to grow cell cultured meat at a more industrial scale. So they're really getting within striking distance, and they're getting investment from big meat companies in the process. Yeah, it's sort of that if we can't beat them, join them in an incrementalist revisionist approach rather than a, you know, uphill battle. And right, I think the debate still remains is can human beings be, can the majority of human beings be vegan? Is that a, a physically sustainable um, proposition? And it's a big debate, right? Because some people succeed on it and healthy and a lot of people end up anemic or needing to be a pescatarian at least. So. Right. Oh, 
Totally. And also whenever you present that whole idea to people, eat less meat or cut meat out altogether, it sort of creates this like, you know, one, there was someone in, at a conference, a cell-cultured meat conference, he was speaking and he basically said, you know, you need to be careful about how you market these types of food because nobody wants to be walking through the grocery store and feel that at every turn they need to make a big moral decision. <laughs> and, you know, it can be exhausting for people. And I think that for that very reason, that's just one reason why, like, maybe not everyone's going to turn around and want to be vegan or vegetarian. And sort of cell-cultured meat offers sort of a, a, a cheater's way out. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and that's to some degree also the impossible burger and that whole realm. Because I'm personally a little perplexed by it because I'm kind of like come from the point of view, if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat it. Don't eat a hamburger. But why do you want to eat something processed that's full of all kinds of additives made in a lab with God knows what added to it? Is that really better? Like that I find more perplexing. I, I mean, I can under, I understand on one level, but then I don't get it on another. Yeah. It you know, it doesn't really <laughs> seem healthier. <laughs> well, and so far it's not, I mean, it's, it's better for you in some respects they say, but then also worse for you in others. I think it's like the sodium content is what's really been like nipping at the heels of the impossible burger and beyond meat people is just how much sodium their products uh, include. You know, one of the interesting things about kind of like this plant-based burger thing is I was in a conversation with the CEO of Impossible Burger not long ago. Well, it was about a year ago. And we were at a restaurant in New York where I would, you know, it was sort of a last minute interview. And I sort of ran downtown and I went into this restaurant and I sat down and they served two Impossible Burgers in front of us while we were talking. And um, we started to eat it. And... I was just kind of, you know, whenever you're trying to fill out someone that you're talking to, I was asking about his family. And I was like, oh, do you have any kids? And he said, yeah, they're, they're adults now, though. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm like, well, are they vegan as well? And he said, yeah. He's like, they are. He's like, they've, always, they've, they've never eaten meat, I guess, until now. And I was like, oh, wow, what, what made them change? Like, he's a vegan. They were raised vegan. Why would they ever, why would they ever switch? What was the motivation? And he said, oh, well, they're eating our meat now, the impossible meat. And I just thought, like, this isn't meat, though. This is made of plants. And his argument is that if you bite into an impossible burger and it satisfies all of the functions of real meat, the taste, the texture, the, you know, how much it makes you feel full once you swallow it and start digesting it, then you can call it meat. That always sort of struck me as like, wow, these these people have really like drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think you, there's a lot of great discussion of the dialectic of uh, in the book about uh, the definition of meat and how how it's it, it's way once you start getting into it and thinking about it, it's way more complex. And then there's also the race to to define it, which is well detailed in the book. Totally, okay, yeah. we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk with Chase Purdy about his book, Billion Dollar Burger. Stay with us. I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and director of collections and archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch Beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. 
I recently recorded an episode of HRN on Tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what makes Hearst Ranch beef unique. I think it's notable that all of the beef produced off the ranches are basically within the food shed, you know, within a couple hundred miles of the ranch, which is really cool. Yeah, it is. And we're and we're looking into doing other things. I mean, we've been working with Whole Foods now for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, but we've also continued to make a small selection of frozen items that people can buy on a year-round basis. And one of the other trends that I've seen pick up massive momentum in the past three to five years is, you know, going back towards people buying their monthly yeah, their monthly uh, beef needs or meat needs, protein needs, and having it shipped direct to their right. house. What I see has changed is instead of handpicking what you think you want to go in there, you trust the company that is providing it to you to give you the variety that you need for your complete right. diet needs. So you might you, you trust that they're going to be sourcing credible mm-hmm. beef, and you may not know as much as these guys do. You trust that they're going to give you the variety so you can expand your palate. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to journalist Chase Purdy about his book, Billion Dollar Burger, and about the high-tech race to create meat that doesn't come out of a slaughterhouse. So I wanted to go back to the question about the pioneers in the field. And in the book, I might have missed something, but I felt like all the people, and it's not that many, you profiled were all men. Are there also women in the field who are not just on the scientist side? Yes, absolutely. There are women in this field, and they there are more and more jumping into it, and they're jumping into it every day. But definitely, you know, mentioned in the book is a woman named Isha Datar, who runs a nonprofit that focuses on promotion of cellular agriculture uh, called New Harvest. She's incredible and one of the foundational people in this movement. Um, also mentioned, you know, briefly in the book are sort of Erica Meyer and Christy Middleton, who like um, aren't running companies necessarily, but they lay the groundwork for these companies to succeed by doing lots of work in the animal welfare space. And then there are some like really impressive people who are in this space now, um, who are starting companies like the, the company that I'd mentioned in Singapore called Shiok Meats is making shrimp founded and run by two, you know, really impressive women. Uh, one of the cell cultured meat companies in Israel uh, is run by a woman named Shulamit Levenberg, who's like one of the world's foremost vascular sort of experts, um, back, back, like vascular system, blood system experts. Um, so there are plenty of women in this space, and it's, it is diverse. I think that if you focus only on Silicon Valley companies, it can be very male-dominated. Uh, but if you look around the world, there are so many women who are in this space. Well, I guess that's a shout out to the American women who are interested to to get in in the game with all these Silicon, yeah. Silicon Valley boys. Um, I wanted to ask you, and this this is sort of more from what you think the people you've talked with think than necessarily your own point of view. But as you were talking about the you know the founder of Impossible Burger and um, 
Josh Tetrick at Just, what's their vision of what happens to animals? Like in an ideal world, would we end up having everyone in cell cultured meat so that we hardly have any animals? And I was, or livestock, those kind of animals. And then I was trying to reconcile that. I was just on a 2,600 acre organic farm in Northumberland in the North of England. And they're their cycle is very dependent on having livestock because they fertilize the organic crops and that's how you get organic fertilizer. And so I was just curious, did you get any perceptions or do they not take it that far because they think they'll barely make a dent in the global food system? I think, you know, from their perspective, their pie in the sky idea is that, you know, I mean, for the people who are in this for animal welfare reasons, the future that they want to see is one where we aren't killing animals for food, period. But whenever you talk to these people about the realities of this and you talk to the pragmatists who are in this space, no one thinks that animal agriculture is ever going to be completely eliminated, um, that there will always be space for small farms, that there will always be an appetite for um, animals that are sort of raised on sort of these smaller operations that don't look like factory farm systems. And another thing that they talk about is how even if people do embrace cell cultured meat, it's going to take a hell of a lot of sales to even make a dent in what is the, the globe's current system. If you talk to analysts who follow, like banking analysts who follow the world's sort of commodities, like these animal agricultural commodities, they say that it would take, you know, five per just getting five percent market share would be considered a major dent, <laughs> initial dent in the animal agriculture world, mm. and that's like you know five hundred billion dollars, so or fifty-seven billion dollars. I'm sorry, and so that's like um you know that's that's a pretty big dent, and no change is going to happen overnight. So in terms of what happens to all the animals. This is something that would be embraced over a period of years or even decades. And so I think it's going to be a while before you see any sort of big change in like how many animals there literally are on the ground. Um, but I think most of these people just want to see less massive uh, industrial mechanized factory farms. Yeah, and I think that the, you brought that across pretty well in the book, because like my initial thoughts when I heard these things presented, I'm like, well, cows and pigs are like domestic animals. They don't really have a huge purpose other than fertilizer, cutting the grass and being eaten. And if you don't eat them, well, they start like what what will happen with hundreds of wild cows? It's, you know, it's not a but but I think you're adding the perspective that it's such a remote possibility that that really should not be first and foremost in our list of concerns. Right. And I think the other thing to remember, and this gets a little sort of more into the nitty gritty of this subject, but it's just that, you know, growing a, a, a T-bone steak is a massive, massive hurdle to overcome in this space. Can they make ground meat products pretty quickly and easily? Yes. You'll probably see burgers and chicken nuggets and tenders and these processed food type things pretty quickly. Maybe even sausages. But growing like a, a, a sort of textured slab of meat is just really hard. And there are a few companies that are focusing on this, but that's even further in the future. So if anything, I almost can imagine, you know, I'm, I'm trying to guess for my own diet, maybe like what would I do? If would I, 
I mostly eat, I do eat meat, but I really kind of like, I don't eat pork ever. Um, I limit my intake of chicken. I eat almost no beef because of its environmental impact. Um, but let's say that like cell cultured meat's an option. I mean, I would probably buy cell cultured beef for a burger. And if I was ever entertaining people who wanted steak or something, then like I would have to turn to the, the conventional animal system to get that for a long time. Um, so it really is going to be an easing in if this does take off. And I think it will take off. And I think that you're not going to notice like a massive change until we look back like 15 years from now. And that's a great sort of segue to what I, what I also wanted to ask you about, which is this sort of ethical debate that really sort of swings back and forth. And you touch on, but you don't, it didn't seem like you went deep on it. But I was just curious what you think after talking to these people is there's clearly people arguing that, well, it's not affordable to for everybody to eat. The, the particularly strong argument is, oh, it'd be lovely if everyone could eat grass-fed, range-fed beef and only occasionally, but that increases the cost exponentially. So we need feedlots and cheap meat to feed a growing planet and it's elitist to think that everybody could spend $12.95 a pound on on meat. But then on the flip side, if you're talking about cell cultured meat and its first thing, it it potentially creates affordability, but it creates affordability where people are, as you're describing, most likely going to be consuming a processed product rather than an all-natural product. And I, I was just sort of curious, do, do you think this is a false choice that we need to worry about one or the other, that we need to democratize eating humane, highly ethically, um, naturally raised meat versus making sure more people have access to, I don't know, average or cell quality meat that is less environmentally um, taxing? I mean, I think that, I mean, that's this, that sort of opens up a, a Pandora's box of questions. I do think that people who feel um, people who would turn their nose up to the idea of cell cultured meat and would push this idea that we can all eat the sort of sustainably humanely grown foods need to sort of snap out of that idea. It doesn't take <laughs> it, it. Sorry. It just doesn't take much digging into like local news, wherever you are to see that so many people are reliant on buying food from dollar general store because there are so many food deserts in this country. Um, that, you know, to run these sort of smaller scale systems that are so meticulously run, like in America right now, the meat we eat is, I mean, I would argue we, we don't actually pay the true cost of what it takes to create sort of quality meat. We just don't. You can buy chicken so cheaply right now. And it's because we rely on these like massive systems that are, both environmentally uh, harmful and also terrible for like the ethics of like these, these animals. And so I love the idea of a slow food movement. I love the idea of being, of paying more for like meat, for instance, paying what meat actually, the true cost of meat and, and creating and growing this meat and producing this meat in the most humane and sort of the most sustainable way. But the reality is, is that you just can't, the appetite for meat is too big. And we've had many, many, many years. The slow food movement is not new. We've had decades 
to try to make this switch, and it just isn't happening fast enough. We're pumping too much methane into the atmosphere to rely on the pioneers of the slow food movement to change our food system in a way that's going to sort of give every person access to you know, conventional meat in an affordable way. And so for that reason, I think you do have to look at cell culture, and you do have to say, yes, there are cons to this. Some of these cons are sort of romanticized cons we have in our brain, but some of them are like, yeah, it's a strange idea. But given what we're staring down environmentally, it would be a very privileged position to take to say that we should just not take it seriously at all. I think that was an extremely helpful answer because it is really difficult to to reconcile that and the inherent nature of slow food and grass fed raising. There's just no question that 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 it, it's not something you put on a scale that and a time frame that can even begin to satisfy a modicum of the existing demand for meat or what a future one would be. And it's, I think, as you said, it's probably equally realistic that you could significantly change the global diet in any rate of time to make up for it. I mean, you could try, but as you were saying in the other statistics of the market, right, if you'd be lucky to get a 5% reduction, which wouldn't likely, you know, be helpful, but it wouldn't. Right. You know, the way that I think about this, and again, this comes in just sort of full disclosure because this is audio, like I am a white middle class man. I have a certain degree of privilege whenever I approach like everything, including food. And whenever I think about how I would like to interact with cell cultured meat in the future, and I didn't write this in the book, but when I think about it on a personal level for me, environmentally speaking, I think that I would probably turn to either plants or cell cultured meat for the majority of like my meat based meals that I make my weekly meals. But when it comes to sort of more special occasions, or whenever I'm throwing like a dinner party for people, and I really want to create something like intimate, and uh, really want to focus for a lot like on spending real time in the kitchen making a meal that I'm proud of, um, I'm probably going to turn to like, sort of these more, more expensive, smaller operation um, uh, farms that work on on beef and chicken and things like that. I think it'll be more of like a, a luxury sort of thing or something to turn to in like a special occasion for me. Um, but, you know, that's just me. No, I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's the way sort of my family lives without it being necessarily like super purposely thought out. We eat a lot less meat and what we're buying is, you know, smaller not the like finest stuff but then we might have it at a restaurant it's been less lately thanks to covid but that totally but then also a lot of times a you're if you're going to a higher end restaurant where you have some knowledge of the chef and his his or her practices you know oh well they're sourcing sustainably and from the best places and places that i couldn't even get in the supermarket anyway and often it's served in a really um modest portion so right i i subscribe to that philosophy but as you say that's definitely a philosophy born out of privilege um, totally and that sort of gets right into like the cost of this because one of the things that i think when people read about cell cultured meat and most of the mainstream press they are immediately sort of confronted with like oh it costs so much it'll cost so much and uh, for that reason i think i it, it is worth giving like a little bit of perspective on the cost of cell cultured meat um 
which is like back when this was introduced to the world in 2013 by uh, a Dutch professor named Mark Post. He went to London and he sort of unveiled this this burger patty and it cost 1.2 million dollars per pound which is you know just slightly out of the price range from <laughs> american <laughs> um four years later in 2017 a company in the bay area called memphis meats told the wall street journal it had gotten its price of chicken down to nine thousand per pound um still a gigantic expense but a major drop in price over just four years and then uh one year later in september 2018 um, I was at a food tech conference in Berkeley where that same company, Memphis Meats, said their price had dropped again to 1000 per pound from the 9000 And then in 2019, we got a series of companies, including ones in Israel that had gotten, you know, beef down to $100 per pound, chicken nuggets down to $50 per nugget. And then um, it was in late 2019 that another Israeli company called Future Meat Technologies said it was on track to have its cell cultured meat down uh, to $10 per pound by 2022. So thinking that this has only been around for like seven or eight years and the price has plummeted from 1.2 million to hovering between probably around 500 per pound right now, I think that just sort of goes to show how much ground these companies are covering in a short period of time to get that price down. Yeah, no, I think that really puts the the sort of future in perspective in terms of its feasibility. Sure. So I was curious, um, I'm assuming that pretty much the majority of your book, if not all of it, was written before COVID took hold. And so I was curious what your thinking is, or if you've had conversations with some of the players of how the pandemic has or hasn't kind of refashioned this landscape and as you were just describing this kind of exponential uh, progress? Um, absolutely. It's top of mind for them. And the whole COVID moment that we're experiencing has given them sort of an extra arrow in their quiver to talk to the public about their products. You know, we've talked about the environmental reasons that you would turn to cell cultured meat. We've talked about the animal welfare reasons that you would turn to cell cultured meat. But the COVID reasons really interesting and it sort of takes a jab right at how we treat the people who make our meat today Mm. you know since since covid kind of struck in the u.s you've had you know thanks to the incredible reporting at uh, fern news um, leah douglas a fantastic reporter there has basically been tracking this and the last i checked there were 494 meatpacking plants that were impacted by covid amounting to more than 42,000 people who had gotten sick from the virus because they're working in these horrible, tight, shoulder-to-shoulder conditions to package the food that people um, are demanding. And the companies behind it, even though they have now, you know, as of a news a couple of days ago, have gotten very small fines from the government, are requiring these people come back to work, even if they are scared of, you know, getting the virus. I think that that system alone is, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of people find that to be very disgusting. I think it sort of harkens back to an era of like Upton Sinclair and the jungle again. I was just thinking about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's not lost on the people who are making this who are making cell cultured meat because in a cell cultured meat uh, facility, you just don't need to have people working shoulder to shoulder. You certainly don't need to force people to come to work. Uh, 
if they're feeling scared of, of coming to work because it doesn't take that many people to do it. Um, so that is top of mind for them. And, you know, and also from the supply demand perspective, you know, it was early on in COVID whenever some of these meatpacking plants literally had to shut down. And we saw just how reliant we are. Like there are only, you know, I think a few thousand, there are a couple of thousand meatpacking plants in the United States and only a couple of hundred of them supply like 85% of all the meat. And so when you, we found that when you shut down like two, I think one was in, uh, one was like in South Dakota, another was in like in Iowa. When you shut just, you know, a few of these down, it like took like 7% of meat like off the market suddenly. Uh, and so it really raised a question, like how much do you want to rely on this hyper-consolidated meat system that is susceptible to things like COVID-19. Um, so it did raise a lot of questions and it is something that the people who make cell cultured meat are talking about increasingly. And I have to assume both as a journalist and having done this book at an early, are it, I assume this is a story you're gonna stay with and, and look for the kind of part two and all these implications. Oh, for sure, definitely. I think that this is, a fascinating, uh, I mean, the, the COVID element, yes, but also just cell cultured meat alone, like it's not being covered by a lot of mainstream media. And I think it's only a matter of time before mainstream media starts reporting on it more, kind of like what happened with Impossible Burger. That's an almost ubiquitous name now. It wasn't mm. like that, you know, two years ago. And I think that mm. we're going to see the same thing with cell cultured meat. So I definitely plan on you know, continuing to follow it. And in part, because I think that, you know, just from like an environmental standpoint alone, like it's going to be important to be thoughtful about this, these future products, like you should be thoughtful. And the whole goal of the book was to give people the vocabulary they need and a basic understanding that they need to sort of begin to rationalize eating it or thinking about eating it. But I think that just as important as it is to be thoughtful about it, you have to be really skeptical of it too. Every single CEO and scientist in this space deserves to be asked hard questions about this, these products because they want, to, they want to feed us this. They want us to stick this in our mouths. And for that reason, I think that we should be asking them tough questions. Well, yeah, and we've certainly been there before only to discover that what uh, the information we were being fed and the products we were told to eat was more driven by fad and profit than actually best intention. Yeah, totally. So after the break, Chase is going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up. And if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Chase, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> so I have like, you know, I, I admittedly have, am not like so intimately, aware, uh, you know, familiar with sort of Julia Child's, the sweep of her career. But 
I do remember a long time ago, um, not that long ago, I guess, but I was homeschooled for many years of like grade school, which meant, you know, working with my, my mom and dad with my classes and taking breaks and sometimes watching sort of PBS. And, you know, of course, in the late afternoon in Louisville, Kentucky, the Julia Child sort of show would be on. And I remember just you know, I was already interested in food. My grandmother, you know, I, I loved eating the food that she would make for us. Um, I would sometimes help my mom cook. And I just, you know, the one thing I remember about her show that stood out more than any other sort of cooking related show that I would watch was just the, her like sort of sing song, carefree optimism around food, it seemed like. She always struck me as, you know, just a completely pleasant and approachable person. And that sort of element always drew me into her shows. And then there was this like funny moment. This isn't necessarily inspiring in any way, but um, you know, this was shortly after COVID hit. <laughs> like, so it's pretty recent. But I have a friend in New York, and he like loves you know looking at Julia Child's clips on YouTube. And I remember we went to this like local bar in my neighborhood that wasn't open for you couldn't go inside but they did have outdoor seating and there weren't many people there and he turned on this like clip of her the show and I remember seeing this this particular episode when I was younger too but it was one where she's preparing lobster and she's just like I mean the way that she like introduces these like lobsters showing all the viewers just how big they can get um and just how like just the way that she was introducing each lobster each with its own sort of special character um my friend played this like in front of a couple of people at this bar at a high volume and everyone just like it was like an infectious moment everyone like totally ate it up um and i think that's just sort of the thing about her and like her approach to food that i think i think about all the time there's like it's okay to experiment it's okay to have fun Maybe that's kind of what it's about. And, um, you know, I definitely take that with me. And I, and I do most of my eating comes from cooking at home. And I definitely try to incorporate that spirit as much as I can in my own kitchen. Well, that's a great full circle moment from your childhood to today and bringing, you know, <laughs> Julia from the 70s, grabbing those lobsters with wild abandon. And uh, you can imagine everyone on set <laughs> being really worried that one was just going to fly out of their hands when they were alive. So Totally. But I think, yeah, it's right. It's all about the approachability and that um, to be fearless. So, well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Chase's book is Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. It's published by Portfolio, a Penguin Random House imprint, also Julia's publisher. Search for it online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller. And for the latest from Chase, he's at Chase Purdy on Twitter. It's P-U-R-D-Y. Follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and Julia Child Foundation on Instagram for the latest news on the presentation of the 2020 Julia Child Award at the October 15, 2020 Gala from Home during Smithsonian Food History Weekend. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. 
please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.